Well, good morning. Welcome to Grace. If this is your first time, we're so glad to have you. Uh, If this is also your first time, or maybe your 100th time, you probably still have no idea who I am. Uh, My name is Jacob Smith, and I am our somewhat new uh, college teaching director uh, over across the street during the normal semester, actually a little bit during the summer. Uh, We have a separate college uh, worship uh, where we, I speak at it, and I help oversee some of our small group ministries and all that stuff. I've been doing it for about a year. I've been at Grace for about six, And I'm so excited to be here with you right now uh, because all the college students, uh, they left me. I've been abandoned. So it's nice that someone's here and this is really great. And I'm glad that we have this moment together. And honestly, uh, one of the reasons that I really love college ministry is because I wasn't in college that long ago. Like I went to Texas A&M University in the history department. They're all working really great jobs. That's why they're not here right now. But I was in his, I was a history major, uh, and during my time at Texas A&M University, uh, I discovered that I did not have within myself the fire uh, to take myself to go to class every single uh, time that class occurred. Uh, and so uh, knowing that about myself, I realized that fault within me. It's a fault. I, I admit that. And seeing that within myself, I thought, I've got to figure out some sort of system to get myself, to motivate myself to go to class. And I realized one of the best ways was to get a class friend, okay, quote unquote class friend, what I would do is when I would walk into the beginning of the semester, this was actually advice from my older sister who is wise beyond her years, and she told me that I needed to walk into my classroom and just find someone, doesn't matter, just some person, sit next to him, introduce myself, talk to him, and then sit next to that person for the rest of the semester. So hopefully I would have this bond and that we would actually become friends and I would have some sort of accountability in terms of going to class. And if on occasion I missed the class, we could exchange notes, help each other out, that great stuff. And so as I was trying to implement this new policy in my life, uh, I realized that generally speaking, girls were better class friends for a couple reasons. One, they would actually be there every week. They just had a better attendance policy in their lives, just on, on the whole, just in general, not true for everyone, but they, would, they were generally more consistent in their ability to show up. They also uh, had much more legible handwriting. And so anytime I had to borrow notes, it worked out a lot better with a girl. And so because of this, and I grew up with two sisters, so I'm used to just being friends with girls. And so I would go into my classes and a lot of times I would find a classroom who was a girl. Now, at this exact same time, I was dating uh, the woman who is now my wife, Susan. And as Susan and I were getting to know each other over you know, the span of all of college, honestly, a couple years in, I had a certain class friend who I'm going to refer to as uh, Elsa, because that's a wonderful name. So <laughs> I walked into class, and that means we can't hate her that much. So I walked into class. And I met Elsa. And so Elsa and I sat together. It was an elective. And so it was just kind of weird stuff happening. And so we just kind of kept each other sane, kept each other accountable to make sure we showed up. And she was a really funny girl. Like we just noticed a lot of crazy stuff happening in our class. We would laugh about it. No big deal. We would leave the class every day, uh, just kind of, you know, talking about stuff, setting up things for the next class. Uh, And then I would immediately go meet Susan, uh, who was, we just happened to have schedules that aligned that semester. And so 
Over the course of that semester, about halfway through, I noticed that Susan was progressively becoming more and more uh, agitated during our little times together uh, after that class. I noticed that she had kind of, uh, I don't know, just sort of soured a bit in that moment. And so I thought to myself, oh, well, I, I need to... I guess she's just having a rough day. You know, I guess there's just like something going on. Maybe her last class is really rough, kind of like mine. And so I'm just going to cheer her up with maybe a you know, delightful anecdote from my day. Or perhaps I'll share with her the funny stuff that happened to Elsa and myself in the last class. Some of you are ahead of me. <laughs> and I discovered... About halfway through the semester, I finally just asked Susan, I was like, what is going on? Like, why? You, I feel like you're upset a lot at this time of the day. Like, is something going on? Is there anything I can do or say? And she just looked at me point blank. She says, Jacob, she says, every time we meet up at this moment, I watch you laughing and chatting with this beautiful girl. And then you walk up and you meet me and you act like it's no big deal. You talk about your experience together. She's like, I just, that just makes me kind of uncomfortable. Like we're, we've only been dating for about a year and a half. Like I just, I'm kind of jealous in that moment. And I realized in that moment, I was like, oh my gosh, you're totally right. Like I realized in that moment, what a fool I had been to bring this Jezebel into our relationship. <laughs> I realized in that moment, she was entirely justified in being upset because I was just talking and chatting and doing all something, bringing it up. I was being a fool in my relationship because I was completely unaware of Susan's feelings on that level. And the reality is that a lot of times we've had a relationship with people where we just get blindsided because we're completely unaware of some aspect of that relationship. We have relationships with God. If you are a Christian, you've put your faith in Jesus Christ so that you can have a relationship, a personal relationship with the God of the universe And many times we find that relationship fractured and broken and marred and scratched up because there's this feeling of guilt. Because there's this sin that pops up. Because there was this whole area of the relationship that we were completely unaware of until it hit us. The truth is we've all experienced those pitfalls. We've all walked into those landmines. We've all gotten into trouble. And when that trouble came, we got blindsided and laid out. And I'm here this morning to tell you that a lot of times that is our mistake. That is our error because we are completely unaware of the spiritual war around us. Many times we get caught up in our culture, we get caught up in our lives of doing this and that and going to soccer practice and making dinner, and we completely forget. We are completely unaware of the entire spiritual realm, this huge part of our life. We are completely just brushing past it. And when that happens, we find ourselves easily attacked. We find ourselves easily broken. We find that relationship easily just scratched up. This whole summer, we're talking about theophanies. 
We're calling it face-to-face because it's literally times when God has manifested himself to humanity. Times when God, in either in, a, in an image or in a voice or in a person, manifests himself so that a person, so that a human could see him or interact with him in some way. And whenever God does that, it's oftentimes to reveal something about his character, something about himself, or something about his plan. This morning, what we're looking at is Zechariah chapter 3, where we see the minor prophet Zechariah seeing God. And when he sees God, God is revealing not only himself, but God is also revealing his enemy for one of the first times in Scripture. And God reveals himself. He reveals his enemy with a very crucial purpose to equip us to fight those spiritual battles, to raise our awareness to this war that's happening all around us. Because you have to know who your enemy is if you want to fight well. So Zechariah chapter 3, as you go to your table of contents and try to find it, I will give you some background. The minor prophets... Okay, there's a whole section of our Old Testament. There's a bunch of prophecy, a lot of prophets. And there's some minor prophets. That's because they're just smaller. And the minor prophets, uh, they oftentimes have very, very intentional names. Really all of God's prophets generally have very, very specific, intentional names. Zechariah literally means God remembers. And that was a big deal for Israel at that time because everything in their lives looked like God had completely forgotten about them. At the time that Zechariah was prophesying, ministering to the nation of Israel, the nation of Israel was actually split. Some of Israel was in the promised land. Most of Israel was actually in captivity. They were in a foreign land with foreign rulers in captivity. But some of Israel was back in the promised land and they had been given the task right around 520 BC. They'd been given the task to rebuild their temple. They were told, hey, you can go back, you can build your temple, you can restore the city. And when you do that, maybe more of your nation can go. And so Zechariah and actually another prophet by the name of Haggai, who also has a self-named book in our Bible, Haggai were both prophesying, ministering at the same time. And Haggai was telling the nation of Israel at the time, hey, you really need to build this temple. You've got to rebuild, 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 rebuild. That was Haggai's big point. But Zechariah at the same time was saying, yeah, yeah, the rebuilding is really important. But realize as you do that, you need to repent. You've got to repent This can't just be a structure that you build. You've got to go into that structure. You've got to make it beautiful. You've got to let God work on the inside and the outside. You've got to repent of that sin, of that darkness in your hearts. And so to accomplish this task, God had gave Zechariah at the beginning of the book, he gave him eight major visions, kind of major prophecies that were all about uh, different topics such as uh, who God was, uh, involved God's plan for Israel, involved a, lot of, involved a lot of the end times, a lot of our eschatology. And it involved also uh, one of the greatest collections of prophecies about our Messiah, about Jesus Christ. And in this kind of chunk of visions, that's where Zechariah 3 is smack dab in the middle. It's the fourth vision of his eight. And it starts off in verse 1 of Zechariah chapter 3, where it says, Then he showed me Joshua, the high priest. 
standing before the angel of the Lord and Satan standing at his right hand to accuse him. And the Lord said to Satan, the Lord rebuke you, O Satan, the Lord who has chosen Jerusalem rebuke you. Is not this a brand plucked from the fire? Now Joshua was standing before the angel clothed with filthy garments. And when we open up on this vision, we've got three main characters. The first one that we kind of notice uh, as we see Joshua, the high priest. All right, now Joshua, the high priest, this is not just like a figurative, metaphorical entity. He's not like, uh, an image of any sort. This is an actual guy that Zechariah knew. Okay, this was the high priest of Israel at that time. He was like near Zechariah. Zechariah like knew him personally. He's mentioned in Ezra. He's mentioned in Haggai. This was an actual man, right? This was the moment. This is that story of, hey, you were totally in my dream last night that you'd actually want to hear about, right? Normally it's like, we built go-karts and you're like, great, right? But this is, Zechariah is given a vision of heaven and Joshua, his buddy Joshua, the high priest is there. But unfortunately, Joshua probably wouldn't want to hear this story because he's in incredibly bad shape. The Bible tells us that he was standing before the angel clothed with filthy garments. Now for us, we're like, oh yeah, filthy, that's gross. But you don't read Hebrew, or if you do, you're already ahead of me again. In the literal Hebrew, this word, talking about the filthy garments, is literally in Hebrew. I'm quoting Bible, so you can't get mad. It's excrement. It's human excrement. That's what Joshua is covered in before the throne of God. The high priest of all of Israel, God's chosen representative, is filthy. So Zechariah sees this and he's like, what's going on? What's happening? Like, why, why is this occurring? And what makes it worse is not only is Joshua standing there, it's not like everyone's just oblivious to his filth. Instead, there's someone else there. There's this Satan who's accusing him the whole time. Who, in other words, is pointing out the filth that's covering Joshua the high priest. Who's, in other words, accusing Joshua in front of God. He's saying, look at this filthy guy. Look at this Joshua. What is he doing? Just bring up accusation after accusation. And what's tough about seeing this occur, what's tough about actually seeing even that name, Satan, is a lot of us are walking into this morning, a lot of us are sitting there bringing in a lot of different ideas and a lot of different old Sunday school lessons, a lot of different Bible studies, a lot of different concepts and honestly kind of old uh, ideas of who Satan is. And a lot of us have a lot of different, they're very different ideas. So just to clarify... This morning, I want us to take just a kind of a little moment and talk about, well, who really is Satan? Like, what is he doing? Who is he? What has he done? Uh, let's just kind of get on the same playing field before we proceed in this passage. So when we look and we see this name of Satan, as I said, a lot of times we have different ideas. And what's interesting is that even people outside this room, even people that aren't involved in a church culture at all, even people that are out, uh, not believers, and maybe even involved in other religions, uh, they all probably know the name Satan. They've probably heard the name Satan. And the sad truth is that oftentimes in our culture at large, we take the idea of Satan, we take the person of Satan, and we take it to one of two extremes. Many times we underestimate Satan. Many times we underestimate this uh, 
creature, this being, and we kind of turn Satan into a joke. Right? Whenever we talk about Satan, I just searched Google image search for Satan. One of the very first ones is this guy. This is our culture's view of Satan. A maniacal, laughing, pitchfork, cape. I don't know why there's a cape. A guy who's just there. He's, he's like ruling over hell. Right? Like he has this power and dominion uh, over the, the lost souls. And occasionally he maybe causes some mischief. Right? Maybe he does things that are bad that we're like, ah, oh, Satan. Right? Like that's, that's kind of our general mentality. That's a lot of people, they underestimate our enemy. They underestimate Satan. I can say that confidently, not only because we have these sorts of images, but because we have gone to the most extreme. We have, we have performed the ultimate act of not taking something seriously, and we have turned Satan into dog Halloween costumes. Okay? This is, this is the pinnacle of who cares? Like this is the, this is the ultimate and we're not taking you seriously at all, right? When you dress up Mr. Snugglepuff to look like Satan, right? If someone walks up and they say, oh, what's your dog going to be for Halloween? The dark Lord, the father of lies. <laughs> Why? Because <laughs> he's such a little devil, right? Like that's, that's our mentality. And so we've created these costumes for our dogs, for our pets, which is really tragic because I'm convinced that this dog kind of knows there's some heresy going on, right? Like you see, he's like, I don't know, you guys. We might be underestimating the Satan character, right? And we've done this though. We've taken Satan, we've taken the idea of the person of Satan, and we boiled him down to a joke. In American culture, we talk about him, we're like, oh yeah, whatever, the devil, blah, blah, blah. And we just don't even care. Our culture at large doesn't even care. We're like, yeah, he's just a superstition. It's just to scare kids. It's like the boogeyman. And then on the flip side, many times we even overestimate Satan. If our culture at large generally underestimates him, there is sadly parts of, honestly, the Christian culture, the Christian community that overestimates Satan. To the point where we assign him these abilities and these powers that are in no way his. We've created this person, this idea of this, this creature who is everywhere, that has all this amazing ability, things that honestly he's not capable of, things that he's not doing. We have many things we'll blame on Satan. In the mid-80s, uh, there was this big scare uh, with Christian radio DJs who were convinced, convinced that there were certain rock bands in America at that time who were putting subliminal messages on their records. Okay, they were releasing records. They were releasing those giant CDs that aren't made of metal. And they would release them. And if you played it backwards, if you spun it backwards or did, I don't know. I, I don't even know what a record does really. But you put, <laughs> somehow you make it go backwards. I don't know how. Uh, flip, no, if you flip it over, that's more. Anyway, uh, so somebody would make it go backwards. And then when you made it go backwards, they were convinced that there were these subliminal messages by bands uh, such as ACDC, uh, Pink Floyd, uh, my favorite Jefferson Starship. They decided that these bands were just, they were worshiping Satan. They were convinced that bands like Jefferson Starship, okay, these people were worshiping Satan. They were just convinced of it, right? I think they, conv- they worship uh, blow dryers, but... <laughs> Maybe not Satan, right? Maybe. I don't know. I can't speak with authority. Maybe they were. But the reality is that probably not, right? Maybe. 
Maybe, but probably not. The reality is that a lot of times we've decided in our mind, we've gotten it up into our, in our cultural consciousness, we decide, oh my gosh, Satan is just this unstoppable force. He's everywhere. He can do anything. And so we're terrified of him. Terrified. Frozen in fear. Telling kids, parents to lock up their children and don't throw away all the records because Satan's out there. He's going to get you because nothing can stop him. We either underestimate or we overestimate this enemy, which is so tragic because our scripture has told us exactly who he is. God has revealed to us his whole plan. God has exposed this enemy and he started in the Old Testament. There's only a couple times, actually. There's only two times that Satan is explicitly talked about in the Old Testament. One of them is in the book of Job. In the beginning of Job, we see Satan talking to God in God's throne room. The second time is here in Zechariah, where again, Satan is in God's throne room. Satan's not ruling over hell. He's actually talking to God in both instances. And what we see is Satan is in front of God and he's accusing Right? And he's being basically just this ultimate enemy of God. In fact, that's what the Old Testament does for us. They sum up, it sums up Satan, right? The Holy Spirit speaking through the Old Testament authors revealed Satan in his name for who he was. It calls him the Hasatan. That's where we get the word Satan, Hasatan. That literally means the enemy. That's what Satan is. The enemy. There were lots of satans back in those days. Like you would, you can even look in scripture, you look in old uh, Hebrew writings and you'll see that someone had an enemy or there was an enemy of the nation or there was an enemy of this guy. And they would use this term satan, but it was always like a enemy, right? That enemy. But Satan was the enemy. The enemy. That's who he is. That's who he is. In a, that's how we boil him down as we see that he is the enemy enemy. That's what the Old Testament reveals about him. And then the New Testament, what's amazing is it just picks up and tells us so much more. Jesus Christ spoke on Satan a ton. The, our new, other New Testament authors, they wrote about Satan so much with the goal of informing us, of equipping us, of revealing who he is, what he's doing. The New Testament tells us that the devil was a murderer from the beginning. Jesus says that he does not stand in the truth because there is no truth in him. That when Satan lies, he speaks out of his own character, for he is a liar. He is the father of lies. Jesus tells us in John 10 that the thief, Satan, comes only to steal, to kill, destroy. We sang about that like 15 minutes ago. We have this enemy, this thief, who wants to steal, kill, destroy. Paul tells us, most tragically of all, that in some people's case, the God of this world has blinded the minds of the unbelievers to keep them from seeing the light of the gospel of the glory of Christ, who is the image of God. Paul tells us that Satan, our enemy, the enemy, is actively seeking to blind the minds of unbelievers, to keep from them the light of the gospel, to keep from them the glory of Christ. That's what he's doing. He's a thief. He's a liar. He's a destroyer. He's a murderer. But he's not everywhere. And he's not all-powerful. In fact, if we kept going, if we looked in Revelation, we would see that Satan has helpers, minions, 
that he uses to accomplish certain tasks. Why? Because he's not everywhere. He can't do anything. In fact, what we see in the rest of our New Testament, we see that God is over Satan. That Satan only has the authority that God has granted to him. That he's the ruler of this world for this time, but that's only because God has given him that opportunity. And honestly, if we read all of our scripture, we find that his time is coming to an end. That our God will vanquish him. That Jesus Christ will ultimately defeat Satan, banish him forever. There will be a time where there is no more lying. There is no more death. There's no more theft. That will all be done away with. Death itself is the enemy of God and he will get rid of it. Satan is not all powerful. He's not everywhere. But he's somewhere and he's doing something. He's not the insurmountable threat, but he's a very real threat. And he's our accuser. That's what we see in the Old Testament. That's what we see, honestly, all throughout the New Testament. That's why Jesus used that term, the devil. Devil literally is the accuser. That's who Satan is. He's the enemy, and he's our accuser. And who can blame him? We saw Joshua standing in front of the throne of God, covered in filth. Satan accuses of him. Anyone would look at that situation and be like, yeah, I mean, there's no real defense against that accusation. Like if you, I was supposed to meet the president of the United States and I walked up to him and I had ketchup just like over this whole half of my face, right? Or let's say I had ketchup on my whole face, just with my face covered in ketchup. The president would probably be nice, you know, because that's what they are. They're diplomats. But other people would probably get on my case, right? Like there'd be articles and blogs and TV cameras. And they'd be like, oh my gosh, random person had ketchup all over his face when he met the president, right? And they would do that if I had ketchup like all over my face. People would also do that even if I just had a little bit of ketchup on my face. Like even if I just had a little ketchup like right on the tip of my nose because that's how I eat, right? Even if I just had a little bit of ketchup, just all just the tiniest bit, people would still get on my case, right? They would still bring that up. They would still accuse me before the national audience because the reality is that I still had some ketchup on my face. Satan looks at the world. He looks at humanity and he sees us disobeying God. We sees us disobeying God's commandments. He sees filth in our lives. And I don't care if you think that you've just got a little itty bitty bit or if you think you're just covered, but it's there. And so he accuses us before God. He says, look at that filth. Look at what this person's doing. Look at Joshua, the high priest, your representative. Look at how disgusting he is. He should be disqualified. He should be kicked out of your presence. God, what is going on? You can't tolerate this. But thankfully, there's one more character in Zechariah chapter 3. Thankfully, there's one more person that we see in that throne room. The angel of the Lord. As Joshua the high priest is standing there with Satan accusing him, who are they standing in front of? The angel of the Lord. This is the theophany. 
This is why we're in this passage, because we see right here this angel of the Lord. Now, this is a slightly confusing term uh, because it's used in a couple, in, in multiple ways throughout our scripture. I would argue in Zechariah, in this instance, this angel of the Lord, while sometimes it's just a manifestation of God himself, while sometimes it's, a manifest, it's just an angel, a messenger, literally is what it means. I think in this instance, you can make a very solid case for it being the pre-incarnate Christ. That this angel of the Lord was Jesus Christ himself. There are distinctions within the first chapter of Zechariah we're not going to get into where you see where he is, the angel of the Lord is called God, is called the Lord, but then he also talks about the Lord, indicating that he's a part of the triune Christian God. We also see right here where the Lord, the angel of the Lord, said to Satan, the Lord rebuke you. There seems to be an indication that I am God, and I'm going to tell you about what God is going to do. So we see in this instance, Satan, Joshua, the angel of the Lord, standing all together. And as soon as Satan brings up all this filth, talks about all these problems, the angel says to those who are standing before him, everyone in front of him, remove the filthy garments from him. And to him, to Joshua, He said, behold, I've taken your iniquity away from you. I will clothe you in pure vestments. He's removing Zechariah's filthy garments in the midst of those accusations. Why? Why would he do this? Why would he show this grace? Why would he move into this situation when Zechariah was not at all deserving of new garments? He's not deserving of pure vestments. Why is the angel doing this? He explains a few verses later that it's because, behold, I will bring my servant the branch. For behold, on the stone that I have set before Joshua, on a single stone with seven eyes, I will engrave its inscription, declares the Lord of hosts. I will remove the iniquity of this land in a single day. God is promising to everyone in this throne room, which we find out it's Zechariah himself. There's an angel guiding him. There's also Joshua the high priest. There's actually a bunch of other priests. Joshua's peers are there. Satan is there. God declares to everyone, I'm sending someone. I'm sending a servant. I'm sending a branch or a stone. This stone with seven eyes, which is a a metaphor, a symbol of omniscience knowing all things, who sees everything. I'm going to send this all-knowing servant and I will engrave upon it. I will use it to remove the iniquity of this land in a single day. Somehow this branch, somehow this stone will make it right for God to remove that iniquity. Somehow this branch and stone, this will somehow allow God to give Joshua these new improved vestments And that's why we see the same language in the rest of our prophecies and in other parts of our Old Testament. We see in Jeremiah that God promises that a new time will certainly come when I will raise up for them a righteous branch, a descendant of David. He will rule over them with wisdom and understanding, will do what is just and right in the land. We find out that this branch Zechariah is talking about is a descendant of David. He's a ruler and he's going to be perfect. He's going to have all wisdom, all understanding. 
He's going to do everything that is just, everything that is right. He's going to be perfect. He's going to be righteous. We find out in 1 Peter that this stone, you, you who see, believe, see his value. But for those who do not believe the stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone. For some, the stone has become a cornerstone. And for others, he says, and a stumbling stone, a rock to trip over. Those people, they stumble because they disobey the word as they were destined to do. Peter looks back. He says, this branch, the stone, was Jesus Christ. God sent his servant, Jesus Christ, to live a perfect life. To not only be righteous and perfect, but then to also allow all who believe... All who see his value, they can believe in him. And when that happens, he becomes our cornerstone. He becomes our foundation. He suddenly is the basis of our entire faith. He's the basis of everything that we do, everything we say, every moment that we live. If you are a Christian, you have acknowledged that you are a sinner, that you're broken, and that the only way to mend Yourself, the only way to mend this world, the only way to mend my relationship with the God who created me is to put my faith in Jesus Christ, to trust in his perfection, to trust in his life, death, and resurrection. And when I do that, when I believe, he's my cornerstone. But sadly, for those who don't, stumbling block, the trip over them. And we've seen that. There's someone in your family. There's someone in your workplace right now who's tripping over Christ. And we see that, and that should pain us so deeply. And we need to realize that this is happening because there's a spiritual war, because there's a war for their soul, that there's an enemy, an accuser out there who is actively seeking to blind those people who's actively seeking to accuse you and make you feel like dirt. We need to be aware of the fact that there are accusations that are launched against us that honestly we would look at them and we would say, yeah, that, that has value. We would see those accusations and we would see the filth and we'd be like, yeah, well, there's no defense against that accusation. But we thankfully have a God who hears those same accusations, who sees that same filth, but he forgives it. He doesn't listen to those accusations because he sent his branch. He sent his son, Jesus Christ, to pay the penalty for those sins. He sent his son so that we, he would not only be able to remove our filthy garments, but he would be able to give us new righteous clothes, we're not only forgiven, we are made righteous. We are given honor and praise and glory through Jesus Christ. God says, I see that filth, but I took care of it. I hear your accusations, but I already forgave them. So we as believers, our responsibility is to be aware that this is happening. We need to realize that there is filth in our lives and we need to confess it before the Lord. We need to confess our filth. Accusations hold so much less power when we're the ones that throw them out. Someone else walks into your life, shines a light on something you're ashamed of. That hurts way deeper than if you just open up about it. 
You confess before the Lord, God, I have this filth in my life. That's why God convicts us. That's why the Holy Spirit convicts our hearts. Conviction is from God. It's a poke and a prod and tries to turn us back to the Lord. That's good and that's from God. But guilt is from the enemy. Guilt is from the accuser. When you have confessed your sin, you can know that God is just and righteous and he will forgive. He's faithful to forgive. So if you continue to feel guilt, that's wrong. It's from the enemy. You can pray against that. Because when you confess your filth, you should be able to accept forgiveness. You should be able to accept the forgiveness that God has freely poured out for all those who believe in Christ Jesus. You need to realize that you are forgiven for your faults. You need to realize that your friend or your coworker or your family member, they're also forgiven for their faults that drive you nuts sometimes. They're forgiven as well. I confess that filth. I accept that forgiveness. And then I continue fighting. I continue to fight. That's why Ephesians, Paul talks about the armor of God, right? One of our favorite VBS Sunday school passages where he talks about this, all these, these armor, this equipment that God has given us. And what's so awesome in that passage is not only Paul talking about armor, which is fun, but Paul also tells us the reason for the armor. He tells us that we've been given all this armor, we've been given all this equipment so that we might stand firm in the Lord. So that we can stand Firm, so that we can be solidly settled on that foundation, that cornerstone, who is Jesus Christ. Paul says that's why God has made us aware of our enemy. That's why God wants us to be aware of the spiritual battle, of the war. Because we have to be aware of the battle to fight well. Recently, uh, my wife and I, uh, or this summer, my wife and I have had just a crazy schedule. Uh, We've been uh, in and out. Uh, of town. Uh, I've been gone a lot. I'm, I'm taking seminary classes up in Dallas. And so I go there and I live, I live in Dallas uh, on an air mattress for about a week or for a week at a time. Uh, my fourth one is this next week. Uh, so I've just been doing that all summer. We've been having work and responsibilities, all that great stuff. And so because of that, because of that kind of hecticness of our summer, uh, we just didn't have a lot of time to connect. Even when I was back in town, I was mentally gone because I still had to be, I had to be working on things. Uh, she would have work. She would be gone uh, on trips, things like that. And so when we were together, I just wasn't quite the same. And in the beginning of the summer, uh, I started to get frustrated. I started to kind of think to myself, well, this isn't right, right? Like, like I'm, I'm frustrated with Susan. Like, I, I don't like the way that these things are going. I don't feel like we're connecting well. Uh, I I don't feel like we're having fun together, right? It just feels like she's this person that I live with, that I've been married to for four and a half years, been together with for about eight years. I just, I just, she doesn't seem like she's the same person that I used to know. She doesn't seem like the woman that I married. And I thought that. And I started going down that road mentally. And by the grace of God, as I was wandering down that path, God convicted me and he exposed the selfish, twisted attitudes I'd allowed to infect my heart. Which is terrifying because it would have been so easy for me to just internalize it, not talk about it, just kind of let it sit and grow my dissatisfaction, my unhappiness. That's what I cared about. But God convicted me and I grabbed a hold of that conviction and I went a walk. I went on a walk with my wife. I wasn't going to join her on her walk, but she invited me. I said, okay. 
So we went, and all over the course of that walk, I apologized to her. I apologized to her for my terrible attitude, because it had manifested itself over the last few weeks. I confessed to her what was going on in my mind and in my heart. I confessed to her that I was in the wrong, that I was in sin. And in that moment, Susan forgave me. And our relationship is stronger. And that's what God wants from his people. That we would acknowledge the fact that there is filth in our life, that we would confess it. But then we need to realize that he always forgives. That even though we hear those accusations, even though we've got that guilt piled up in our life, God says, I've forgiven you. I took care of it. I died for that. We need to be aware of that battle. We need to be aware of that spiritual war. We need to realize that God has seen our filth. He's heard our accusations, but he's forgiven us. We don't need to underestimate or overestimate our enemy. But instead, we confess the filth. We accept the forgiveness. Let me continue fighting. So let's pray. Lord, we thank you that you are faithful to forgive. God, we thank you that you have exposed and therefore disempowered our enemy. God, we thank you that you've shown us his whole battle plan. That God, you've revealed to us every part of his character. That God, you've told us that ultimately he has no power that isn't straight from you. God, we thank you that you are the ultimate authority, that you are the ultimate power, that you can overcome any filth, any accusations. Lord, we just ask that we would remember and trust in that fact, that we would walk out of these doors and not just forget the message that, God, something would sink in. If you would, take a moment right now and just pray to God. Ask him to maybe reveal where you've just held on to some guilt, or maybe where you've held on to some frustrations with another person's sin. Ask God to just expose right now in your heart, in your mind, where you've been holding on to a sin, either in your life or in someone else's. And if you would take a moment now and just ask that the Lord would give you the strength to forgive, that he would give you the, the clearness of mind to forgive What's been going on? Ask that God would show you maybe the conversations that need to happen, that maybe he would carve out the time in your schedule where you just need to talk to someone or maybe a time to talk just to the God himself. Ask God to, to equip you to pave the way so that there can be reconciliation and healing where there was brokenness. Lord, once again, we just thank you for this opportunity to worship you. God, we thank you that you are so worthy of more worship than we can even muster. God, be with us this day, this summer. God, guide our steps. Lord, speak through our mouths. Lord, we ask all of these things according to your will. Amen. All right, well, we love you guys. Have a good post-July 4th summer.